Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Well, we are continuing our series on the book of Mark. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. You can find this in the Blue Pew Bibles on page 851. And if you would like a larger print Bible, we have some red pew Bibles in the back, and it is on page 1012 in that Bible. As you're turning there, just want to remind you of a few things. Again, we have these invitation cards. These are great ways to be thinking about people to invite, to be praying for people to invite to church. We also have the opportunity in the back for sermon notes. Uh, We've got these notebooks that are empty where you can take sermon notes. We'd love for you to take one. No cost. This is our gift to you. Take it. Bring it back. Take notes in it uh, so that you can remember and reflect on the sermons later. Also want to remind you that after worship today, we have an informational meeting. Uh, Anybody is welcome to stay, Uh, but this is the quarterly update that the deacons are giving us, and there's a few other things that we want to mention. And finally, we want to uh, let you know that for kids ages 5 through 5th grade, we have what we call Caruso Kids Zone. Uh, which is out that back door and over in the Caruso Kid Zone area. This is a time for kids that age to go and to study the Word. Right now they're going through a series by Marty Machowski on an overview of Scripture, how the story of the Bible from beginning to end is the same. It's all about the Lord, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Having turned to Mark chapter 14, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple, that this is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds, with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Father, we pray that as we examine this text, this kangaroo court where the Sanhedrin 
just came up with ways to kill Jesus. We pray that you would help us to understand what it is that we are supposed to understand about Christ. That our minds would comprehend what's going on. That our hearts would hide the truths of the gospel and the beauty of who Jesus is. And that our hands would work out these truths. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. March and April of every... Sorry, you can be seated. (laughs) March and April of every year, we take some time to explain what it is that we do in worship. We want you to know that everything that we do in worship is intentional. It's instructive from Scripture. And so as we've been going through, we've been explaining... Why do we pray? Why do we have confessions? Why do we have assurances? Things like that. This week, we're talking about the sermon. Why do we have a sermon? Now, we've said over and over again that the entirety of the gospel is, or the entirety of the service is a playing out of the gospel. And as the scriptures are unified as building on and progress, a progression of the covenant promises of God, when we get to the sermon, The worship services dives deep into this word. Augustine said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Calvin also believed that when the word is preached, Christ speaks through the Spirit to the hearts of his people. Brian Chappell, when speaking of John Calvin's worship service and how he designed it, said, by Calvin's design, the hearts of the people are prepared in praise, confession, and pardon to receive the ministry of their Savior. But the preparation is for the primacy of the Word, where Christ alone provides the glory of the worship service. The sermon itself is to be is to expound, to explain, to pull out Scripture, helping us to understand it through explanation, through illustration, and through applying what Scripture says. The goal of the sermon, the goal is the exposition of the word and the edification of your hearts. Sermons are meant to help both you and me in understanding the text, in growing in the word of God. And something important about sermons that many people forget are that true sermons are written for the congregation where they are preached. As your pastor studies the text, he not only thinks about what it means, but how it comes out here in this place. Sermons are preached to a particular people in a particular place. And so the sermon is an exposition, an understanding of what the Word of God is, and it's meant to draw you into His presence, to draw you into his word. So I hope that helps you understand better what we're doing here in this sermon time. Now that we've read the text, let's dive into Mark chapter 14. Before we begin every sermon, we remind ourselves that context is? Context is king, that's right. We say this because we have to remind ourselves that before we dive into a text, we need to understand what's going on. Who wrote the text? Who did they write it to? What was going on at that time? What was the purpose of writing that particular text? 
And so here in the book of Mark, we've seen that Mark is the shortest synoptic gospel. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, that tell the story of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have similar stories, and so we call them the synoptic gospels. And Mark is the shortest of those synoptic gospels. It was written by John Mark from Peter's Witness, and it's the, probably the earliest gospel written. And it's interesting because it was written to Gentile Christians. Now when we read through the book of Matthew, we see a lot of references to Jewish history and how Jesus answers the questions from Jewish history. There's a lot of assumed knowledge. But the book of Mark is written instead to Gentile Christians, those who don't have that history. People like Roman soldiers who are coming into faith and understanding who Jesus is, but don't have the full understanding of all the history that Jews grew up with. And as we've looked through the book of Mark, we've seen some key themes. We've seen the sonship of Christ. We've seen God say multiple times, this is my son. We've seen the authority of Christ. We've seen that as he teaches, he also performs miracles that help to point back to the truth of his words. He casts out demons. He heals people. He controls the weather. All of those are not why he came, but they point to the truth of what he is saying. Those are supposed to orient our hearts and our minds to, wow, what is it that Jesus is saying? And we've seen that what Jesus is saying is the gospel of Christ. All throughout the book of Mark, he's been trying to tell his disciples, you're looking forward to a Messiah. And the thing you have been taught is that this Messiah will be some kind of political conqueror, kind of like King David coming in and pushing the bad guys out of the land. But I'm coming as a Messiah that's different. I'm coming as a Messiah that's providing a salvation that is far greater than just pushing out one nation. And as he's done this, we've seen how Jesus has been discipling his disciples. We call them the disciples because they're the first ones that we see this discipleship process happening in. They're being poured into by Jesus. Despite them not understanding or comprehending what he's saying, he continues to love them and pour into them and bring the truth of the Scripture to them. As we've been going through Mark, we've also been using the imagery of Kintsugi pottery to help us remember and explain the gospel. We are broken people. Our sin makes us broken, and we feel that. Not all of us attribute our brokenness to our sin, but if we are bowls and plates and broken, then we can't be serving our purposes. But through the gospel, we are repaired. The beauty of Kintsugi pottery is that it's this Japanese art form that repairs vessels, but it doesn't do it in such a way that you can't tell that the plate or bowl or whatever was broken. Instead, it accents the ways that it has been repaired. This is what the gospel does to us. The gospel doesn't make us perfect. The gospel doesn't erase all our hurts and all our sin. Instead, the gospel accents the places where it has healed us and brought us back into a place where we can serve our purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Quite simply put, the gospel is, as Paul says in Romans, that the wages of sin is death. Everything we can do, everything that, that we can contribute just leads to our death. Because we're sinners. But the free gift of God is eternal life. 
on our own, we get death. With God, we get life. So how do we get this eternal life? Through trusting in Jesus Christ. The one who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve, was again from the grave and is seated at God's right hand. Because of this gospel, when we believe in this gospel, God makes us whole again. His children able to accomplish the purposes for which he brought us here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so that's how we've been illustrating the gospel throughout the book of Mark, reminding ourselves of our own brokenness. Now today, before we dive into this kangaroo court, I want to talk about justice. And when we think about the word justice, for most of us, and for the most part, I think we want it. We want justice. We want to see fairness and equality and things like that. Usually it's for selfish reasons, because if they get justice, then that means we deserve it too. But justice is something that's ingrained in us, something that we want. And we know this is true because we get upset whenever something unfair happens, either to us or to someone we care about. So for example, when other people hurt others and get away with it. We don't like that. When we see court cases where someone has uh, committed a crime against somebody and gets away with it, we don't like that. That hurts us. That bothers us because we want justice. Or when people cheat and get away with it, we don't like that. Especially if we're watching sports. I get all excited about our teens. But when another team cheats and gets away with it and doesn't get accused of it and doesn't lose their wins, that bothers us, that frustrates us because they've done something that we know is wrong. Or when people steal or do something wrong and get away with it. If you have siblings, you know what this is like. He punched me. I'm so tired. Just work it out. Well, that's not fair. When I punched him, I got in trouble. We want justice. We recognize when justice isn't being done because it feels wrong. And yet this lack of justice is exactly what Christ went through. Christ did not sin. Instead, he kept pointing people to the Bible, to God's Word, to the Old Testament, helping them to understand who he is. And yet the religious leaders, the one who should have jumped on the bandwagon and helped him out, Want him dead. And it's not for just reasons. They want him dead because they don't like the way that he is threatening the status quo. And we just last week looked at how Jesus was arrested and brought to the leaders. How his disciples all fled. And today we're going to see what happens after this arrest. We're going to look at the witnesses in verses 53 through 59. We're going to look at Christ's confession in verses 60 through 62. And we're going to look at the responses in verses 63 through 65. The witnesses, Christ's confession, and the responses. So let's start by looking at verses 53 through 59 and the witnesses against Christ. So Christ is arrested in the garden. And then we read in verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. So the guards take Jesus to the high priest's house. They don't take him to an official place in town. They take him actually to Caiaphas's house. 
And the whole Sanhedrin gathers. Now, you remember the Sanhedrin is the religious leaders of the day, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are supposed to keep uh, all the rules and laws and, and be the authority. So the guards bring Jesus to Caiaphas' house, and all the Sanhedrin gathers there. Then in verse 54, we hear, And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, this verse is going to be really important next week as we talk about how Peter reacts to these things. But remember, first Peter fleed. All of the disciples abandoned Jesus when he gets arrested, and now Peter is following at a distance and follows to the high priest's house. And then we get into this court situation. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Now let's just be honest. This was never going to be a fair trial. It's happening under the, dark, the cover of darkness. It's happening at a house instead of in the place it's supposed to. And even though they are using everything in their power to bring Jesus to, in their minds, justice, they're struggling. It was never going to be a fair trial because chapter 14, verse 1 says they wanted to kill Jesus. Their motivation for this trial was not to discover the truth. And so in some ways we would say this really isn't a trial. Really what this is is a kangaroo court, as we've already said. And we can tell that because of the language. If you look back, it says they were seeking. That means an ongoing action. They were trying to find somebody, and they couldn't. So they kept trying, and they kept trying, and they kept trying, and they kept trying. They were trying to find evidence that led to a death sentence, but they could not. Look at the last part of that verse. They found none. Then in verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So they found people to testify against Jesus, but they couldn't get those testimonies to agree. Many people bore false witness. Notice it doesn't say bore witness against him. They bore false witness. They lied under oath, which is a big deal in the law of Moses. They bore false witness against him, but it didn't agree. And according to the law of Moses, a death sentence could not be reached with conflicting evidence. So the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are actually in trouble here. Because according to their own laws, they can't put him to death because they can't get testimony that agrees. You have to have multiple testimonies, and you have to have multiple testimonies that agree. And here, they can't do that. And so they get desperate. And in verses 57 through 59, we see that in their desperation as witnesses, they try all kinds of different accusations. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They are twisting Jesus' words to try and convict him. They are twisting Jesus' words to try and get a death sentence. Christ never said he would destroy the temple. He did say the temple would be destroyed, but he never said he was the one that was going to destroy the temple. 
And yet they're twisting his words, they're bringing false witness in an effort to try and accuse him. All along the way, we've seen that it's very clear that Christ is a threat to the established order of the religious leaders. All along the way, we've seen that Jesus is upending the cart, if you will. Bringing the truth of God's word, which threatens the comfortable situation that the religious leaders were in. And so now they're reaching for any accusation they can find to kill him and get rid of him. But they're coming up empty because Christ is actually innocent. It's funny because here, God's religious leaders are actually the bad guys in the story. If you like Star Wars, they're the Empire. They're trying to do something that is not right. But even, even in those false witnesses, they can't get everything to agree because Jesus is innocent. So anytime we make things up, it's not going to agree. So those are the witnesses and their accounts. Having looked at the witnesses, let's switch and look at Jesus' confession. The witnesses all give accounts. None of them agree. It's not working. So now the high priest stands up. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Basically, the high priest stepping up, standing up, signals that a decision's about to be made. Probably also signals that he's getting frustrated because he realizes that if something doesn't change, they're not going to be able to kill him. He tries to get Christ to respond in some way, shape, or form so they can twist his words right there. But Jesus is silent. Look at verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Back in Isaiah chapter 53, we get these, what we call the servant songs of Jesus, these prophecies of Jesus. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As they try to create false testimony and can't do that, now they're trying to warp his own words against him and he remains silent. Christ's silence makes it harder on the high priest because as long as he remains silent, there's no way that they can accuse because those accusations not only are false, but don't agree. So the high priest uses language from Christ's own teaching to try and draw him out. Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? This is some of the teaching that Jesus has done in the temples, and the high priest is putting this teaching together and presenting it to Jesus, trying to get him to admit. And finally... In verse 62, Jesus answers with three incredible phrases. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He says, Ego a me, I am. When was the last time we heard that? Who is the most famous person to say, I am? 
Think back in the Old Testament. Moses says, when the people ask, who am I representing? Who, what am I to say? And what does God say? I am. Not only that, but he says, I will be seated at the right hand of power. This is a reference back to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says, and I will be coming with clouds, which is a reference back to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. One commentator calls this sentence the Christological climax of Mark. This is the peak of Christ in the book of Mark. He finally, openly admits that he is the Son of God the Savior of sinners, the Messiah they have been looking forward to. He has been building towards this through the whole book in his teachings. And now it's out in the open. I am. Let's look at some of these things. Let's look back at Psalm 110. Psalm 110, again, because context is, yes. When we read references back to the Old Testament, we need to go back to those texts and see what they're about. Because when the Jews heard this, they would have known instantly what Psalm 10 was saying. So Psalm 110, Christ is saying he will sit at God's right hand. All right, let's look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a royal psalm, meaning it's a psalm about Jesus, about the Messiah, looking forward to the Messiah. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Remember when we were in uh, Advent last year. I know that was more than three nights ago, but Advent last year, the Christmas season, we talked about how Jesus was in Hebrews, and we said how Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so here we see in Psalm 110 another mention of Melchizedek. Jesus is going to be the Messiah, the priest, the one they've been looking forward to. Something else to remember about the context of all of the Psalms is that they are songs. Every Psalm was sung by the people of God. And so when they hear these words, it would be like the first line of a song. We're going to try something here, okay? Audience participation for just a short period of time. Sweet Caroline. It's like you know the song. And so Jesus says, Sweet Caroline. And they're like, oh my gosh, he's, he's saying he's the Messiah. Jesus says the beginning of Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, I will make you your enemies your footstool. And they recognize this psalm is about the Messiah. This psalm is about the Son of God. This psalm that he is claiming to be the one. They would have totally understood that reference. Now we have to go, oh, what is that reference for? You know, and, and flip back and look. But this psalm celebrates 
God's promises to David. This psalm yearns for a day in which the Gentiles would receive the light. And this psalm seeks to be faithful to the calling as God's people. Jesus is claiming this psalm. Jesus is saying, I fulfill 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promises to David. I fulfill those. Jesus is saying, I will allow the Gentiles to receive God through his life, death, and resurrection, trusting in Jesus. Now we as Gentiles can receive the Lord just like the Jews. And Jesus is saying, I am calling you to faithfulness. He sings, he says, but he sings this psalm. And he claims these things. This is incredible. This is just unbelievable what he is saying to them. I am that one. Not only does he start with I am, recognizing himself as God, but he goes to Psalm 110 and says, I fulfill the promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. I will allow the Gentiles to receive God. I am calling God's people to faithfulness because he is claiming Psalm 110. Wow. But he doesn't end there. Then he moves forward and he quotes from Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13 which is about the coming of the Son of Man and how that Son of Man is greater than mere humans. Look at verse 14. We see that he's given dominion. He's given glory. He's given a kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I am that man. I am God. I fulfill his promises. And I am the one who is coming and will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 both express Jesus' sovereign authority. Christ is God. Jesus sits and he listens to these people say all these false things about him, knowing that there's no way that they can accuse him. And then the chief priest asks him, are you the son of man? And he claims it definitively and definitely. He claims not only to be a prophet, but to be the Messiah they're looking forward to. So we looked at the witnesses and their false accusations, and we looked at Christ's confession and how glorious and incredible and eye-opening and now out in public this is. Let's look at how they respond. Christ has made bold claims. And so we ask ourselves, do the leaders understand what he said? Because after all, all throughout Mark, Christ has been saying these things to his disciples. You know, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that's going to come. I'm, and, and they keep thinking, despite him saying, <clears throat> I'm not a military Messiah, they keep thinking of him as this military conquering king. Are the leaders going to make that same mistake when he makes this statement? Do the leaders actually understand what Jesus' bold claims are? Yes. Yes, they do. Psalm 110 would have been a known and sung psalm. It would have been clear the connection that Jesus was making. Everyone that heard that would have made that connection. 
bum, 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 they would have gotten it. They would have understand what Jesus was claiming. These words by Christ were the worst form of blasphemy for the religious leaders because Jesus is asserting divine sonship. Jesus is asserting that scripture or that he shares glory and splendor with God. Jesus is finally, fully asserting who he is. This would have blown the religious leaders away because in Isaiah 42, 8, it says that God doesn't share glory with anybody. But Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 show that God shares glory with a unique figure because we know that within the Trinity, glory is shared. Jesus isn't just a, a great prophet, a good teacher, or a good man. Jesus is God, and he is claiming that. He is claiming to share glory with God. He is claiming to share splendor with God. And so what do they do? Verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? In tearing his garment, the high priest emphasizes both that he fully understands and gets what Jesus is claiming as well as his own dismay and indignation. Now notice here, none of these leaders ever even consider for a moment that Jesus might be telling the truth. They are so zeroed in on killing him. They are so zeroed in on getting rid of him. They are so zeroed in on pushing him out of the way that they won't even consider that he could be the Messiah that God has promised, that he could be the one that is fulfilling these covenants, that he could be the one that they are supposed to be watching out for. They're so narrowly focused on killing him and as soon as he tells the truth, they're like, that's it, we're done, we don't need any more witnesses. I realized that all these witnesses were false witnesses and it didn't work, but good, now we finally have something that can bring us to kill Jesus. And so look at verse 64. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. They hear what Jesus claims. They hear Jesus' quotes. They hear how he is connecting himself to God and claiming to share in God's glory, and they instantly condemn him to death. Now, interestingly, when we look at the Mosaic Law for blasphemy, which is what they're accusing Jesus of, blasphemy was punishable by stoning. That's, he would get death, but he would be stoned. And we know that's not the way he died. And it's interesting because with the Roman occupation, the Sanhedrin is not allowed to make a death sentence. Instead, it has to be someone from Rome, a Roman representative. And so if we were back in the days when uh, the Sanhedrin uh, ruled without Rome there, then Jesus would have been stoned to death because that was the prescribed death sentence for blasphemy. But because of the Roman occupation, God works through all history. I'm sure the Jews didn't like Rome being there. 
But because of the Roman occupation, Jesus wasn't stoned to death. Instead, Jesus was hung on a cross. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but I found it interesting. We were talking about Heidelberg a couple of weeks ago. And in Heidelberg number 39, it says, Is it significant that he, that is Jesus, was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes. By his death, I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. The Romans crucifying Jesus mattered because being hung on a tree was a curse. Jesus not only took our sin, but he took the curse that we deserve. And so, I find it interesting that they find him guilty, but they're not able to give the punishment that they would normally give, and instead he's hung on a cross, which we know is significant because of that Roman occupation. So they have unanimously decided on Christ's death. And then look at verse 65, because verse 65 reflects our sinful hearts. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him and say, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. They found him guilty, and they begin to mock and abuse him. They cover his face, they cover his eyes, they hit him, and then say, prophesy, tell us who hit you. If you're really God, you'll be able to do that. Not only that, but they spit on him. Spitting is a universal sign of contempt and insult. The cool thing is that has made it across translations. That has made it across generations. That has made it up to today. If you spit on one another, that is not a sign of love. It is easy for us to understand that that was bad and that they were insulting him. They were showing him contempt. Now, the reason I said this verse shows us our own hearts is because these men were supposed to be the leaders of the community, leading citizens of the city of Jerusalem, and once they get what they want, they all break down into sinful attitudes. But they got what they want. He's going to die. They have him convicted. He is dead to rights. All they have to do is they have to go to Pilate and come up with some reason why the Romans would want to kill him, and he's dead. But instead of leaving it at that, they mock him, they insult him. These men who are supposed to be looked up to because of their example of godliness go to the most debase and gross examples of mockery and insult. They spit on him. They mock him. And they're not the first to do so. Remember last week we said Judas did it. And they're not the last to do so either. We're going to look forward in the next few weeks at how many people mock and disregard Jesus. The one who is our Savior. Brothers and sisters, this verse should make us weep. Because we're thinking, this is the man who died for you. This is the one who went to the cross even though he didn't deserve it at all. And everything he said was true. He died on your behalf. And how do you treat him? You treat him with insult and contempt. This is what we do every single time we sin. We treat Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf with insult and contempt. We spit in his face. We cry out, crucify him. And so while we can read this with a 
heart or attitude of anger towards the religious leaders, we also have to look at ourselves and say, how am I doing that as well? Now, that was the leader's response to Jesus' proclamation. But I think that we also have to ask about our own response. We talked about the gospel in the very beginning and how Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve, rose again from the grave and is seated at God's right hand, like he just promised from Psalm 110. How through faith in him, trusting in Christ and his works alone, not Christ and our works, but Christ alone, we receive adoption into that family. This had to happen. It's not a happy thing, but it had to happen. And it should make us both weep for the injustice and rejoice that Christ was willing to do that on our behalf. So how do we respond when we read this text? How do we respond when we see this kangaroo court? How do we respond when we see injustice done to Jesus? Jesus suffered great injustice. He was perfect, yet punished. And yet, he trusted in God's plan. Are there places in your lives where either injustice is happening to you or you don't understand what God is doing? Are there places where you may be asking, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me, like Jesus did in the garden? How do you respond to these hard times? The example of Christ is to pray, to trust in God and his plan, and to stay faithful. To pray, to cry out to God, just as Christ did in the garden, making your requests known to him, thanking him for what he's done, but also crying out in agony. When you look at the Psalms, this is not only the Psalter or the, the, the song book of the Bible, but it's filled with songs where people are crying out to God saying, I don't understand, I don't understand what's going on. Let, yet let your will be done. So we're called to pray when injustice is happening to us or around us. We're called to trust God. Your emotions are often going to be what either leads you into sin or into holiness. We need to watch those emotions. Excuse me. We need to be paying attention to how we respond. When we do sin, we need to be paying attention to how we got to that place and try and avoid situations that will lead us that way again. Watch yourself. Trust God. Know that even when injustice is being done to you, justice will be served. It's one of the great promises of the gospel. All that is wrong will be made right. So while you may be being unjustly persecuted here on earth, justice will be served for you in eternity. You may not get to enjoy it or see it or participate in it, but justice will be done. Trust God. And stay faithful to God's call in your life. Satan is trying to get us to doubt that God loves us. He's bringing trials and temptation like he did with Job to try and get us to run from God and to trust in ourselves. But Jesus' faithful example is a model for us of staying faithful to God, even when injustice is happening, even when we're being persecuted, even when we're hurting. Pray, cry out to God, trust 
watch your emotions, believe that he is just, and stay faithful to God's call. Christ did these things. And he calls us to as well. We can rejoice deeply and wonderfully at his claim. And we also can live in such a way that reflects who he is and was during this time. Let's pray. Father, we don't like to read about situations like this where injustice is done, where the wrong verdict is called, and where the punishment is carried out before the right verdict can be corrected. And yet we also know, Father, that this is your plan. This is what you did for us. You sent your Son who lived the life that we are supposed to live, who died the death that we do still deserve, and who rose again from the grave, defeating death, and is seated at the right hand, just as he promised he would be in Psalm 110 and here in this text. Father, we pray that we would trust in Jesus. We pray that we would recognize and rejoice that he fulfills all of the promises that you've made, that he allows us as Gentiles to receive you, Lord, through faith, and that he calls us to faithfulness. Father, let us live lives filled with prayer, crying out to you, recognizing who you are, trusting in you, and staying faithful to your calling in our life. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.